Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Ross. Good to see you this morning. It's always uh, it's a privilege and a joy to be able to share God's word with you, um, as I'll do this morning. Many of you have been asking um, about uh, some kind of response to the situation that's happening in the Ukraine. What, what I will say is, um, please be praying. Uh, let's be praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Let's be praying for our brothers and sisters in the church in Russia, um, that they'll be found faithful um, in that day. And we are actively working with two organizations that are attempting to get supply chains on the ground in the Ukraine. And so um, watch out over the next days and weeks as we look at some practical ways to be able to serve our brothers and sisters there. But both of those organizations were very clear to say, the most meaningful thing you can do right now is pray. Uh, I was struck by that. They didn't say the least you can do. <laughs> they said the most meaningful thing you can do is pray. And so let's be found faithful, um, praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, especially those who find themselves um, in the face um, of uh, much fear uh, in that country. Uh, watch out for social and email over the next couple of weeks as we start to get some understanding of best practical ways uh, to support people as that situation unfolds. Matthew 26, 14 is where we will be continuing in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. In the weeks between now and Easter, which is speeding towards us at an alarming rate, We'll be focusing in on the last three chapters of Matthew, which really chronicle the last week or so of Jesus' earthly life. The narrative slows down quite a lot. And I've been spending a lot of time in it just preparing for these messages, and it's so sobering to read. The passion of the Christ. But it's so important for us as Christians, because we are essentially a cross-focused and utterly cross-dependent people. Now, we're not along, right? But it's kind of crazy when you think about it, that we would voluntarily celebrate an icon of shame and torture as the source of our hope. And then we would worship an apparent victim of the most cruel and shameful punishment that mankind ever invented. Uh, this is unique to Christianity, that our founder and indeed our Lord would be shamed publicly in his death. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller made the point that the founder of every other world religion dies in a fairly simil uh, similar way, having, having accomplished what they promised their people, right? Uh, Moses dies at 120. He's still strong. He's the undisputed leader of Israel at that point. He's freed his people. He's taken them right to the border of the promised land and people mourn his death. Buddha dies at 18, he dies serene, we are told, and surrounded by his devoted followers who are committed to taking on his work. Confucius dies at 72, welcomed back into his hometown and surrounded by faithful disciples. Muhammad dies in his 60s, he dies in the arms of his wife in a comforting fashion, having successfully ruled over a united Arabia. And then we get to Jesus. Dr. Keller says, when you come to Christianity, you have a man who dies at perhaps age 33, who has a ministry at the very, very most of three years. And when he dies, he's alienated from his own people. He's killed by the colonial power of Rome. He's abandoned by most of his friends. And if you believe the text, he's even abandoned by God. His death is premature. It's tragic. It's a disgrace. It's shameful because it's a crucifixion and crucifixion was the most shameful, the most degraded of all forms of execution only for the very worst criminals because you were stripped naked and you died by inches with everybody just looking at you, watching you die by inches for days. 
And yet, friends, today, the cross is one of the most celebrated icons in all of the world. It's fascinating. Why would we attach ourselves to this kind of symbol? People tattoo it on their skins, right? You've seen this. They hang it on their rearview mirrors and on their walls and from their necks and, and, and from their ears and often in like bedazzled fashion, which is one of the strangest ironies I've ever seen. Oh, a diamond encrusted cross. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, do, do you know what that is, right? Now, don't worry. You don't have to tuck it away. I've seen it already. Um, and, uh, judging from the inside of my heart, but, but people make a sign of it over their bodies in a hope to secure divine protection. Have you thought about that? I'm going to make a sign of a brutal torture instrument in the hope that things will go well for me. That's a weird association. I was watching soccer yesterday. You know I love you because I called it soccer, so you'd understand. Um, and I love watching the English Premier League, right? And, and I was watching late in the game, and Man United were terrible again. Um, uh, apparently, you can't buy titles, and uh, they, they were struggling, and so they made a substitution. Two new players coming on for two older players, and the, and the older players ran off the field, and they touched the, 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 the touchline, and then they made the symbol of the cross. Now, I know these guys. They are not bastions of Christian ethic, right? And then the two new players came on, and they also made a sign of the cross over their body, and I was like... Is this advanced repentance? Like, what is happening? Because you are now going to run onto the field and break all 10 commandments at the same time. That's basically soccer, right? That, that's, the, that's what it is. It's who can break the most commandments in a short period of time. If anyone gets within 10 feet of you, you have to lie and pretend to be mortally wounded. And then you have to swear at the poor officiant who doesn't believe that you're mortally wounded when you, in fact, aren't mortally wounded. You know? But still, they go like, oh, Jesus, give me blessing in this endeavor. Like, Jesus is watching the game like, yeah, Man United, the Red Devils, that's my team. Um, uh, this is a very strange thing to associate ourselves with. Why do we do it? Well, Christians believe that on the cross, this humble Galilean peasant who looked like a shameful failure was actually the son of God rescuing his people from their sins and their rebellion. The text over the next few weeks are all going to press into the weighty magnificence of that. The cross lies at the center of everything we believe to be true about God. And the cross lies at the center of everything we believe to be true about us. And the cross lies at the center of everything we believe to be true about how God relates to us. And so let's jump in at verse 14 of Matthew 26. Friends, I'm going to tell you this is a heavy text, and there's so much in it that we'll need to leave unsaid today, because the scriptures do. And there is a deep and profound mystery in the person and life of Judas Iscariot, and we will get to speak about him in more detail in a few weeks' time when we cover his death, right? That'll be a real seeker-sensitive Sunday. Um, bring your friends along. Uh, it should be non-stop fun, that one. But much of the life and the choices of Judas, uh, Judas will be beyond our understanding, I'm afraid. What we do see clearly in this text, though, is actually a summary of the redemptive history of mankind. It goes like this. There's a sin that separates people from God. But there's a salvation as God substitutes someone blameless as the sacrifice for sin. And then there's a security for those who, even though they continue to sin, live under the covenantal blessing of that sacrifice. Sin, response of salvation, and then a security who live under the covenantal blessing of that salvation. Look at it with me. We'll go from verse 14. I'm just going to read a bit, talk a bit, read a bit, talk a bit, and then we'll be done before you know it, or perhaps after you know it. Verse 14. Then one of the 12, that's amazing to me. Matthew's going out of his way to say, Judas was with us. He was with us for three years. You can be near to Jesus and still not believe in him. You can be near to Jesus and still not be faithful to him. He's received the same revelation of who Jesus is than the rest of them, and he comes to a different conclusion. 
whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest. Now notice this, the chief priests don't come to Judas. He goes to them. He's already made the exchange in his heart. He's looking for the opportunity and said, oh my goodness, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This question is so central, friends. What will you give me? Judas asks, what can I have in the place of the Lordship of Jesus? What can I replace Jesus with when he disappoints me? Because make no mistake, Jesus had disappointed Judas. Judas was hoping they were gonna go to Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, and right now Jesus is talking about he's gonna submit himself to the power of Rome and be crucified for them, and Judas is disappointed by that. Uh, Judas is the treasurer. He was hoping that he would be able to build some kind of uh, ministry empire with Jesus, and now he's seeing women anoint Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. Judas is disappointed with the trajectory that Jesus is taking in his life. Before we get to that, though, uh, just a couple of observations from the text. There's some things hidden in here that are so helpful. Firstly, what is offered to Judas is not a lot of money, right? I've always assumed 30 pieces of silver, like, man, okay, like they went all in on, on Jesus. They really didn't. Do you know that this amount wouldn't have changed his life in any significant way? It was five weeks' wages for the most basic of laborers in that context. It probably amounts to a few hundred bucks, certainly less than a thousand today. Not nothing, but not millions. Note the stark contrast, uh, contrast of the text from last week where Mary pours out perfume that's worth tens of thousands of dollars on Jesus' feet because his worth was way more to her than her family's riches. And here Judas is prepared to hand him over. Now listen, when he says hand him over, uh, you might struggle with this text. He's not just pointing him out. They knew who Jesus was. To hand him over was to provide false testimony uh, of something that deserved death. He was gonna go give false witness about Jesus to the high priest, which is the basis on which they would arrest him. And so he, when he's preparing to hand him over, he's saying, I'll do it for 30 pieces of silver. You start to see what has actually taken place in the heart of Judas. He doesn't value Jesus at all. He doesn't value the sacrifice of Jesus at all. He doesn't think Jesus is worth anything. Why? Well, we don't fully know. <laughs> Some scholars, and there's some, there's some weight to this, they pontificate from Judas' background and indeed his name that he was part of the, the, the religious and political tribe known as the Zealots, right? Which means that he was banking his life on the liberation of Israel through the violent militaristic overthrow of Rome. And when he realizes that Jesus isn't going to do that, then Jesus loses all value for him. I, I'm not sure that may be the case. What we do know is that Judas doesn't treasure Jesus as Jesus really is. He only treasures Jesus for what he thinks he can get from him. Now listen, before you sit in judgment, this instinct sits in many of us. And so we need to be cautious. I love how Bishop N.T. Wright concluded when pressed on the motivations that may have been driving Judas. He simply concluded that evil is ultimately absurd. He was like, why does anyone do anything evil? It's absurd. Uh, it make crazy trades. But when he was summarizing his answer and calling us to not be in too quick a condemnation of Judas, he said this, which I thought was brilliant. He said, who knows, right? What motivated Judas, we don't know. Who knows? We certainly don't. And, I'm fr and frankly, I'm happy not to peer down that murky well for too long. I might see reflections that I find disturbing. <laughs> Here is the big observation, friends. The essence of sin is trading life with God 
for what we can get in his place. It's a trade. It's saying I could either be with God or I could have this thing. Tell me more about this thing. What will you give me in the place of being with the savior of the world? What will you give me is the root question which lies beneath every sin since the garden. We could have intimacy with God, but we're constantly on the lookout for what might be better for us than that. And so before we stand too swiftly in condemnation over Judas, we ought to be asking ourselves where we are tempted to make similar insane trades. I'm tempted to do this all the time. We could have God, but I seek what the world could give me instead. Will you give me money just to spend on me as I see fit? Because when I'm with God, he only offers me a life of contentment that's marked by radical generosity. Will you give me pleasure without any kind of boundaries or restraints? Because when I'm with God, he only offers me the confines of holiness. Will you give me worth and acclaim and success and influence and enough people validating me? Because when I'm with God, he calls me to humility and meekness and servanthood. And we're out looking for the trade. I see time and time again in my life and in the lives of people around me that we can be very, very happy with God right up until the moment when he doesn't do what we really want him to do. Or right up until the moment he dares to say that we cannot do what we really want to do. What happens next is the trade. Okay, I'm not happy with this. What will you give me in his place? And then we settle for the pitiable offer that is made available to us. Sin is ludicrous, isn't it? We never get out the back end of sin and be like, no, that was a great idea. <laughs> we always go like, oh, what have I done? It was an insane trade. It wasn't worth it. I could have had God. And I chose this. Oh, my goodness. My friend Joel Brown is a songwriter in Seattle, and he wrote a song for Good Friday, which is called What Have We Done? It was written in Seattle, so it's a lament, it's in minor chords, it's in six, it's you drink strong coffee and look at the rain and bemoan the fate of the world, right? That's what, <laughs> what the music is designed for. But I'll never forget the first Good Friday service when we sang Joel's song and it struck me to the core. It starts with this intense minor chord and, and, and the song opens and says, oh my God, oh my Jesus. And then the second line says this, Judas sold you for 30, I'd have done it for less. Oh, friends. How does God respond? How does, how does our Lord, through Jesus Christ, respond to the imminence of this sort of betrayal? Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Friends, I'm so moved by the love of Christ, evidenced in the power that he has at this point and what he uses that power for. Let me explain, it's amazing to consider. It's evidenced in that text that we think is just set up for the next section, that Jesus remains in control even in the details of the preparation for his death. Uh, let me walk you through this for a second. Jerusalem would have been teeming with people 
for the Passover, the most sacred feast. Some say millions would have been in the city and the surrounds, in a city that was normally like a tenth of that size. Yet here we see Jesus fully in control of all of the arrangements of a Passover meal, which would have been an incredibly complex thing to arrange. Now we're not sure if he arranges this by pure miracle or if it's by advanced preparation, but either way, what do we see? We see Jesus knowing where he's going and we see Jesus knowing what comes Next, can you imagine how hard it would have been to find space and to find lamb and to find bread and to find wine for the Passover meal when three million people are looking for the same thing? Like, I can't really imagine. Have you ever been to Costco the day before the Super Bowl? It's the third level of hell, right? It's like, it, it is unbelievable. You walk out a Christian, just say, oh Lord, I'll do whatever. Just make sure I don't have to do that again, right? A lot of people trying to find the same thing and you go like, if only I'd prepared better. Jesus is in such control that he's prepared so well that we don't know if this guy just finds this news now or if Jesus has prepared him beforehand. But you know what we don't see? A Jesus who's stumbling into Jerusalem going, I don't know what happens next. He knows exactly what happens next. Here's why that matters. I was watching a documentary on a plane the other day, and the documentary was called The Historical Jesus. I thought, this would be good. It wasn't. Um, They reckoned that Jesus ultimately ended up being a victim of circumstances in Jerusalem. Historically, they can't deny that he existed. Historically, they can't deny that he was crucified in Jerusalem. Historically, they couldn't even deny that his first followers believed he was raised from the dead. They just needed a narrative to piece together why was he killed because the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world means you have to repent of your sin, and people don't want to do that, right? And so... There's this other narrative. Uh, They reckon that Jesus ultimately ended up being a victim of circumstances in Jerusalem. That he was a political revolutionary who overreached in a hostile environment and he got killed by an inflamed and angry mob. In, In their deduction, Jesus was as surprised as anybody else by his death. They quoted Albert Schweitzer, who famously said that Jesus threw himself on the cogs of history, but those cogs crushed him and have been churning him up ever since. Here's the problem, though. The biblical account is kind of the opposite. Jesus had prearranged all of the details. He knew he was gonna die. He knew Judas was gonna betray him. And he knew that he still needed to teach the disciples the big meaning of it all. Jesus wasn't being crushed in the gears of history. He was turning the wheels exactly as he wanted. And what he wanted was to save you. That's what he wanted. It's so beautiful to know that Jesus knew what awaited him. And he went through with it anyway. It's so beautiful to know that he knew we would need the symbols that we'll celebrate today to remember him by. And so he makes sure to set up a teaching session so that we could remember him rightly. Oh, friends, why? He loves you. When your world feels out of control, isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus turns the wheel of history in exactly the direction that he desires? Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. No, stop for a sec. You notice it didn't say with the 11. The 12. He knows betrayal's coming, and Judas is still invited. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Now that's interesting. They don't go, that's Judas. <laughs> that's Judas. Right? They don't know. They're not sure. He's looked like a faithful follower for a long time. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? 
And he said to him, you have said so. Now Judas remains through the rest of the meal. And so we, uh, the scholars believe that Jesus just whispers this to Judas like, yes, it's you, right? You have said so. What you have said is true. This is beautiful and tragic. The truth is, listen, Jesus didn't need Judas to do this. He was going to the cross with or without him. But sin had taken a hold of Judas' heart and what we see from Jesus is actually continual loving persuasion away from his sin even to the very end. He invites Jesus to sit with him at Passover. He taught his disciples, including Judas, what he was going to do for them. He let him share a cup and bread and friendship and fellowship with him. In fact, in John 13, we're told that Jesus hands him a piece of bread, showing him that he was the one who was going to betray him. Friends, you know what that means in that culture? Sharing bread was an invitation. It was a gesture of friendship in the day and a big chance, even in that moment, I believe, for Judas to repent. But his mind is made up. And so Jesus told him to do what he was going to do quickly in the account in John. But Jesus was offering him mercy right up until the end. Oh my goodness. Friends, it seems to me that Jesus offers mercy and friendship even to the most vile of sinners and even to the very end. And more than that, it seems to me that Jesus is capable of making something deeply sinful into something beautiful as his death uh, by the hands of men ends up saving the very men who plotted to kill him. Some of you feel like you're beyond the grace of God today. If you're here and you're breathing, you just aren't. But you must take his offer of friendship. You must receive it. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Second big observation is this, right? So remember this sin, that's a trade. Sin is a trade. You're trading what can I have instead of God? Salvation too is a trade. The essence of salvation is God giving himself so that sinners can be with him. We're going, what can I have instead of God? And God says, I give you myself even when you make that bad trade. I offer myself for you. What happened at this Passover meal was staggering, friends, and magnificent. We're gonna need to deal with it in context a little bit. Now, I know that that's gonna be detailed, not what many of you signed up for. But as we said earlier, Passover was a big deal. It had to be prepared for and then eaten in a very ritualistic and very particular way that many of us would miss in the normal reading of the text today. I grew up at a, a very Jewish dominant elementary school. Um, uh, my parents had sent me there and so I had the privilege of sitting on the outside of many Passover meals. I wasn't invited to partake because I was a Gentile, um, but I got to observe this and it's beautiful. The Passover meal has four distinct stages, each marked with a separate cup of wine, my kind of meal, right? And the head of the table, usually the father will introduce each of the four stages and it's catechesis. And so the youngest one at the table will ask a question of the meaning of each of the four stages and the oldest one will respond by telling them the story of God's redemption and raising a glass of wine and explaining the magnificence of that part of the feast. It's deeply moving. Now Jesus is seated at the head of the table. He's playing the role of officiating over this Passover feast. They would sing Psalms together. They would say, 
amen to each of the four pronouncements about God's goodness. And so the four cups of wine represented the four promises that God made in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. There God promised, I will rescue you from Egypt. You were there, I'll take you out, right? And so they drank the cup of sanctification, the cup of rescue. That's the first cup. Secondly, the promise is, I will release you from slavery. No one will have dominion over you again. And so they drank the cup of deliverance, the second cup. The third cup was the cup of redemption where God's promise is, I will redeem you. I'll make you my people. I'm gonna buy you back so that you'll be mine. Not only will you not be Egypt's, you will be mine. And then lastly, the fourth cup is the cup of praise, which is about the renewed relationship with God. You will be my people, right? I will be your God. I will dwell amongst you forever. And then they would sing hymns and be done with the meal. But this meal is no ordinary meal, friends. Before the third cup is taken, the head of the table would bless the various elements of the meal and speak about their meanings. He would say that the bread was the bread of the affliction of their forefathers. And the bitter herbs represented their bitter suffering in Egypt. Everyone in the room would then respond. And then the third course, the actual food of the meal was supposed to be eaten in somber silence. Jesus breaks this couple of thousand year old tradition and says something really shocking to the disciples. Instead of him taking the bread and saying, this is the bread of our affliction, he takes the bread and says, this is my body. And they would have gone, what? What now? He's saying, This is not just about the affliction of our people. This is about my affliction on your behalf. I will be afflicted instead of you so that you don't have to be afflicted anymore. This is the the bread of my suffering and my affliction. I'm going to lead the new and the greater exodus. My people will no longer simply remember their affliction, but rather they will totally depend upon mine. I am entering fully into the suffering of my people. I will go all the way down. Our friends, whatever you suffer, you have a Lord who says, no, I've suffered more. Eat. This is my body. This is my affliction, I see you, but I've suffered more. I've suffered more so that you can endure this. And then he did the same thing with the wine. He says, this is the sacrificial blood of the new covenant, right? Now, now Jewish boys would have gone like, we can't have any part to do with blood, right? That's in the Lord. Jesus says, no, this is my blood. At Passover, you painted blood on the doorpost. Now this is my blood that will cover you in righteousness, but you must drink of it. You must drink of it, and then I promise I will cover you. I will cover you. Jesus was telling them that all signs of God's redemption up until that moment had pointed to him. And what he tells them in the parallel account in Luke is that they should do it continually in remembrance of him. Every time these symbols were seen, they would point back to him and remind us of what he had accomplished on the cross. Now listen, here's where it gets super interesting for me and two other nerds in the room, but but it's fascinating. Jesus then makes a vow which ends this meal. The meal isn't supposed to be done. They're supposed to to eat and then there's supposed to be a fourth cup. But Jesus makes a vow that he wouldn't drink again until that day that he drank it anew with them in the kingdom. He doesn't go on to finish the meal. This was the first Passover meal in generations when they didn't eat the Passover lamb. Why? Because the lamb of God is seated at the head of the table and is no longer represented by the Passover lamb that was lying on the middle. He's saying, I am the lamb of God, you eat of me. Our friends, please don't grow too familiar with this message. It's mind blowing. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
but you have to take and you have to eat. You have to drink deep of a righteousness, not your own, which means you have to, by faith, realize that you cannot atone, but that Jesus already has. This is the great message of the gospel, that he became sin, who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God, but you have to participate in that righteousness. Verse 31, we're nearly done. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. I love the disciples. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Peter's the best. He's just right in there, right? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Unless there's a super scary teenage girl, then I'll fall away three times, right? He's so committed. He says, I will never. And Jesus says to him, look at the love of Christ. Peter, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Oh, friends. So if sin is this trade and exchange and salvation is a trade and exchange in, in, in the other place, where do we find our security? What do we do with the fact that the disciples couldn't go on to be faithful? Well, the essence of our security is that Jesus is faithful even to those who can't be faithful to him. He's faithful even to those who can't be faithful to him. There's such an incredible collision here between the abandonment of the disciples and the faithfulness of Christ. Just look at these collisions of phrases in 31 and 32. You will fall away because of me this night. Jesus says, you will fail. You're gonna sin this night. But then verse 32, after I am raised up, I'll get it done. I'm still gonna die, I'll still be raised from the dead, and then what will I do? I'll go before you to Galilee, not to scold you, to be with you, and to bring you in, and to show you my love, and to send you out on the mission. Oh, the love of Christ, who knows that his followers will forsake him, and who still goes on to die for them, and still assures them that he will find them after his resurrection. Listen, Jesus' grace is more powerful than their rebellion. The disciples thought that their hope lay in the measure of their devotion to Christ. But Christ knew that the only hope that the disciples had lay in the measure of his devotion to them. He was all in. All right, now if you're paying attention, you would go. So why is there redemption for the other 11 and not then for Judas? Well, we're not really sure of all the details. Here's what we do know. There is a degree in Judas's faithlessness that is different to the rest of the disciples. When he betrays Christ, he isn't just being a bad friend. Rather, he is saying that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. He's saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's saying Jesus isn't the hope of Israel. He's making an active declaration of Christ's value and of Christ's identity. He has clearly become convinced that Jesus is not the Son of God. Faith in those things, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah and the hope of Israel, that's required for salvation. And so Judas shows in this moment that he is not part of the people of God. Secondly, we see no evidence of Judas practicing repentance in return. When Jesus is resurrected, we see the remaining disciples all coming back to him in their own way. Peter jumps into the water. Thomas wants to touch his side, but they all return. And so they're all restored. Judas never does. We'll deal with that tragic example in a couple of weeks. And then lastly, we are told in Luke 22, 3, that Satan enters into the heart of Judas just before he makes this trade. Now, what we know from the rest of Scripture is that writers like Paul saw the handing of someone over to Satan as the final step in a long journey. 
of unrepentant sin. I think this shows in Judas someone who is so far gone that they are no longer able to trust the conscience that has become broken through the repeated ignoring of it and who no longer recognizes the voice of the Spirit because he stopped listening to the Spirit a long time ago. Here's what I would say to us in response because I know some of you are troubled by the story of Judas. Firstly, if you are worried about being like Judas, that's actually a good sign. <laughs> that's the Spirit stirring your conscience. You know what I would say? Don't be. <laughs> Turn. Repent, don't get there. Turn back earlier, repent sooner, receive more grace. Take the bread, drink the cup. In a reckless, abandoned act of faith, receive the offer of mercy that Christ has for you. Secondly, I'd say this. If we read this text and our primary takeaway is I don't know what to do with Judas, we've read the text wrong. The big idea of this text isn't the rebellion of Judas. The big idea of this text is the remarkable mercy of Jesus. Don't fix your eyes so firmly on the betrayer that you miss the opportunity to be confounded afresh by the beauty of the Redeemer. So here's what we're gonna do in closing today. We're gonna do this in all our congregations around the city today. We're gonna eat the meal that Jesus offered us. If you're a believer, then this meal is for you. You're welcome to eat in remembrance of Jesus, but you must take and eat his body broken for us, afflicted for us. You must drink freely of the blood of the new covenant, believing that it is sufficient to cover sinners like us in the righteousness of our Savior. He has two responses that make no sense in communion. The first is someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord taking communion makes no sense. And in fact, the scripture warns that it's hypocrisy that heaps condemnation upon your head. And so as we pass communion around the room, if you're saying, I don't think Jesus died for my sins, I don't think he rose from the dead, don't pretend to be part of some religious ceremony that has that at its core, right? Rather pass it along. There's no judgment in that. There is heavenly judgment in the hypocrisy that says, I'll just pretend to be accepted by the people around me, right? And so pass that thing along. But if you wanna become a believer today, you can. For some of you, that's stirring in you. You walked in here, you didn't believe Jesus died for your sins. Now you do, that's the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not me. We've seen my capabilities to persuade people. They're very, very low. That's the Holy Spirit persuading you of the Lordship of Christ. You can become a believer and partake in that meal. Here's the second response that doesn't make any sense. I see Christians not receive the meal because they say, oh man, I feel too bad, too guilty about my sin. That's the very reason to take it. You have to eat. You have to drink, you have to, because when you do that, you say, Jesus is enough. His righteousness is enough to cover my sin, right? His blood is precious enough to take care of my rebellion. You must do it in faith. Otherwise, you don't get to participate in the blessing of the righteousness that he has for you. You must eat and you must drink. For everyone else today, we're gonna prepare for the meal, not with the four cups of Passover, but with four looks that my friend Ewan Harrison, who's gone to be with the Lord, I can't wait to drink the fourth cup with him one day. Four looks that he taught me to take as a young man every time I came to the communion table. The first is look up, right? We look up and we see the love of Christ. Friends, start there. As you hold those elements in your hand, it's hard to not believe that God loves you. <laughs> if those things are true, oh my goodness, he loves you. And so look up and remember his love. The second look is look in. Paul says, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Right? So don't eat and drink in unrepentant sin. If, you, if you've been sinning, go to the Lord. Run to him and then eat and drink the assurance of his mercy. Right? So look in. Look at all the bad trades you've made. And then remember the good trade that Christ makes on your behalf. Third one, look around. Communion is communal. 
right? And just like the cup of Israel's redemption was a celebration of a people, we get to look around and see our brothers and sisters and say, oh, Christ died for them as well. Isn't that amazing? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, if there's divisions among you, first go sort those out before you take the meal. And so for some of you, you might be taking the meal, you look around, you go like, ah, oh, my bad. I need to say something first, right? And go grab someone by the arm. I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you enjoy the blessing of Christ's communion with me this morning? That can be a powerful reminder. And then the last one, the last one is look forward. What did Jesus say? I won't drink of this again until I drink with you in the new heavens and the new earth. The wedding supper of the lamb, he'll drink, he'll raise his glass and we'll get to drink with him. What a day that will be. I love Psalm 116 when I think of this. Psalm 116 says, I will lift high the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And so every time I take communion, just before I take it, as I've looked up and I've looked in and I've looked around, I look forward to that day and I raise my glass in accordance with Psalm 116 and I say, Lord, until that day, until that day, we drink here because we can't wait to drink with you on that day. Oh, dear friends, what a marvelous Savior we have in Jesus. Don't let it be blasé or all too familiar for you this morning. Let's take our time. I'm gonna pray, they'll distribute the elements, take your time, and then have an honest response to the greatest exchange in the history of the world. Jesus gave himself for you so that you could participate in the life with him. Let's eat and drink to our great King. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us an honest and right response to the mercy of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, I confess that all too often I am like Judas. I'm looking around at the world saying, what will you give me? What will you give me to turn away from him? Oh, Lord, forgive me for the folly. It's so stupid. It's insanity. Help me, Lord. Help us all. But in this moment, help us to know that your son is faithful to us even when we are faithless to him and that his sacrifice is enough, and that the exchange that he made is enough to overrule the bad exchanges that we've made. And so give us faith in this place to eat and to drink in clear conscience. But there are those who don't know you this morning, may they come to know you. Holy Spirit, would you persuade people this morning? If that's you, you can just say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. I believe you raised, we were raised from the dead, and that I'll see you again. Please forgive me, he'll meet you. Father, for those who believe, but have walked paths like Judas and now feel they're beyond the reaches of your grace, I pray that you would give them faith to eat and drink with happy hearts this morning and to believe in, in your mercy. Won't you forgive them, Father? Won't you meet with them? Won't you restore them? Won't you fill them with your Holy Spirit? And then, Father, to all of us, especially to those who are in the midst of suffering, won't you give us eyes to, to lift and to look ahead and to say, until that day, until that day, when we drink with you in the new heavens and the new earth, We'll have this drink now in remembrance of you. Help us to do it well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.